If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to uh, uh, Acts, Acts chapter 2. We'll be in verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. I want to put a question before you this morning. What did they do with 3,000 new converts? The, the last time we were in the book of Acts together, Peter preached, and he says that 3,000 came to faith, and they were baptized, them and their entire households. And what you get in our passage this morning is, is what happened with those 3,000 people? What was the plan? What was the next thing that happened? And I want to try to answer that for us. Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. And they, meaning the 3,000 plus the 120, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we turn our hearts to your word and pray that you will be our teacher. In worship, we sing of your praises. We hear of your goodness. In worship, we're reminded of things that we so easily forget. We live in a world where works and meritocracy abound. And yet we come here and we remind, we're reminded that you are a God of grace and compassion and mercy. In worship, Lord, we speak, but you also speak back to us through your servant and through your word. And so I pray that as your word has been faithfully read, that it would be faithfully preached and that you would be faithful to your name to build us up into the likeness of Jesus. We pray this in his name and for your sake. Amen. So I want to start with a few pictures on the screen. So what is that? A lion. Now, when you think or see that picture, what comes to mind? Mufasa? I heard somebody say Mufasa, right? What, what else? Power. I hear you, Miss Grace. Power and strength. King, right? King of the jungle. Apex predator. Top of the food chain. It eats what it wants, right? Now, here's the question. What do you think when you see this picture? You see, I knew it, right? I knew it. I knew it. What do you think? Like, talk, talk to me. Jaguar? Almost. You're close, man. Do you think like a pet? Like, I, I kind of want to own one of them, right? If I could keep him at that size forever. But he's not ferocious. He's not at the top of the food chain. A hyena will pick him off like nothing. The potential to be what you saw on the first page is there. But how does it get from the little cub to what you see right there? 
What, what has to happen? This third slide is what has to happen. He had to be with his family. You see how the mothers are flanked right and left, and you see where the cubs are in the middle, underneath. You see where they are? They're at a watering hole. You see, lions know that the potential is there to be the king, but baby lions are vulnerable. And what they need more than anything is the pride. They need lions more mature to take them to watering holes. They need lions more mature to tell them, you can't hunt a crocodile or an elephant, but you can get on these zebras and these gazelles. You see what has to happen? The potential is there. That's a lion. But they have to be formed. And the way they're formed is in the context of community. That these mother lions and these male lions, they show them rhythms and habits and where to hunt and how to hunt and what to avoid until they reach that maturity. Thank you, brother. You know, this is a lot like the Bible. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and the author of Hebrews, they all use language that speaks of formation and transformation and growth and maturity. They all say, hey, we want you to eat the milk and drink the milk, but you got to grow up to solid food and eating solid food, then you grow into salvation. That they're talking about this maturity, this formation that has to happen where new believers grow up into the likeness of Jesus. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. He says, man, y'all are messing with my babies, and I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So we're not talking about formation to be talking about formation. We're talking about formation into the image of Jesus. The seed is there. The Holy Spirit has given new birth. He's given new life. But that life has to be formed and cultivated and shaped until those who were babes, who were vulnerable, are mature and, and steady, and we look like Jesus, we think like Jesus, we act like Jesus, we love like Jesus. So what did they do with 3,000 baby Christians? They formed them. The 120 from Acts chapter 1 saw their community grow 25-fold through one sermon. That's 25 new converts for every one believer. And those believers, the 120, they weren't just any believers. These were the people who walked with Jesus for three years. His mother was there. His brothers were there. His disciples were there. The apostles were there. They were all there. And for a split second, they were the church. And when Peter preached and 3,000 came in, they got to work. They formed them. They passed along what they learned from Jesus himself. They did not leave them babies in Jesus. And the babies did not wander off and do their own thing. They drew near. 
So when you think about spiritual formation, what comes to mind? Rich Velatus is a pastor in New York. He has a book written. It's called The Deeply Formed Life. And he says, in some conservative traditions, formation is about getting the right theology in our head, but we overlook the inner work of God in us. In some progressive traditions, formation is about the right action and and engagement with the world, but we often overlook personal humility and mercy in the body of Jesus. In some charismatic and Pentecostal traditions, formation is about the right experience, but it's without the deeper work of learning and loving well and exploring our inner worlds. Here's what Pastor Rich is reminding us as we think about formation, that Jesus' view of spiritual formation will often be radically bigger and more robust than any of our individual traditions. It's not just about head knowledge. It's about obedience. It's not just about missions and justice. It's about connected to the body of Jesus. It's not just about going to a building to worship. It's about life together in homes. In other words, what you start to see in this passage is they are a group that's committed to learning, but they're a group that's committed to obeying. They're a group that's committed to going to the temple for corporate worship, but that's just the beginning. It doesn't stop. It's not a box to check off. Like, I've done my religious thing this week. I'll see y'all next week. No, they're doing life together. They care about the world around them. It says that they had favor with everyone, and guess what? They did not jettison the church. In other words, what you're starting to see is this picture of formation that's beautiful. It's what I want for us. It's what I want for me. Is that we will be formed after the likeness of Jesus. That our lives would begin to look like his. His passions would be our passions. How we planned out his week would be how we plan out our week, how he uses his hours would be how we use our hours, how he uses his table would be how we use our tables, where he went with his feet would be how we use our feet, what he did with his hands would be how we use our hands. And this is not wrong to desire this. If the spirit of Jesus is in you, Do you think he wants to conform you to anything different than himself? So, John Polhill writes, Luke's summaries about the early church, they're an ideal, listen to this, an ideal for the Christian community. He says three things, we must always strive for this, We must constantly return to this, and if we don't know it, we must discover it anew. You hear what he's saying? That when you get a vignette into this early church, that maybe in your discipleship, it was bypassed, that formation is important. Or maybe you have gotten off the beaten path, 
thinking about being formed in the likeness of Jesus. Here's what he's saying, that wherever you are, that what these summaries do in the book of Acts is that they become these models, this picture that we should always hold up and say, I want that. I need that. And so here's what I want to do. I want to tell you that for formation to happen in the likeness of Christ, you must prioritize prioritize the believing community. And I'm going to show you the patterns of the believing community. And I want to show you the proof that God is saying, no, this is where it's at. So priority, pattern, and proof. You'll notice twice in our passage that Luke tells us that they were together. And the they has to mean the 120 and now the 3,000. It says they were together. Look at it in verse 44. All who believed were together. You see it again in verse 46. And day by day attending the temple together. Now, they did not go their separate ways. That the new converts didn't just say, okay, I heard Peter, I'm a Christian now, holla. And the new Christian, the older Christians didn't just say, okay, y'all are in the kingdom, holla. No. It says, no, they were together. And I think this togetherness is twofold. There's a spatial togetherness, S-P-A-T-I-A-L, spatial. And there's a spiritual togetherness. Now, when I say spatial togetherness, I want you to think about proximity. That the word there is literally, they were upon one another, or they were towards one another. Now, I love shows like uh, Person of Interest or 24, those type of shows. But here's what we learn from those shows. That based on our phones, that we all have geopositional coordinates, right? Your phone is, is, is being tracked by these satellites in outer space. And where you go, you show up as a little dot, right? And everywhere you go, you're on an X and Y coordinate on the earth, and that's how your GPS works. It's tied the same way. They know your position, the position where you go, and there's a layout of the roads, and it just tells you. It's geopositioning. And in those shows, right, if they want to identify the bad guy or go rescue a rescue mission, they'll do geopositioning and they can tell you exactly where it is. And it just kind of converges on a building or a warehouse. And then they might launch a missile, right? Or they may, may send a Navy SEALs team, not just into the building, but into the building, into the precise room to rescue the person needing to be rescued. Now, they're able to do that because of geopositions, right? Now, if you were going back to the early church and you were to see this 3,120, what Luke is saying is they were geopositioned together. That what you would see is little red dots just kind of stacked all over each other. Like they're going to the grocery store, they're doing it together. They're walking to the temple and they're doing it together. You go to one home, you might find five dots in the home together. It means that they were proximate. It means that they were close enough to discern a distinct person's laughter. Like a wind, Kenyan. You can be anywhere in this church, and when wind laughs, you know it was wind. Close enough 
to see when our wives start to get pregnant and our hair turns gray and wrinkles show up. Close enough to see this, close enough to see our children come in one Sunday and next Sunday, man, he is taller than his mama. Close enough to hear tears. Close enough to be in worship. And you had a bad week. And it's hard to sing of God's amazing grace. And the person next to you, they sing it. And they're singing to God, but they're singing to you. You hear what what, what Luke is saying? They were spatially near each other. Not just on a Sunday. But there's also spiritual togetherness. That in verse 46, it says they they went to the temple day by day together. Now that together there is not a preposition. It's a verb. It is they were of one mind. And this isn't the first time we see that in Acts. In Acts 1, when they're in the room waiting on the Holy Spirit, it's the disciples, the apostles, the women, Jesus' mother and his brothers, and they were of one mind. Same word there. And this isn't the last time you'll see it, that you'll see it later in Acts chapter 4. 5,000 men are added to the 3,000, so that's at least 8120. And in Acts chapter 4, 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. And the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Acts chapter 6, the Gentile widows are sinned against. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is killed. In Acts chapter 8, the same word comes up again. They're still on one accord. You see what's happening in the book of Acts? The church grows numerically. The church hurts each other, and the church is persecuted, and the church is diverse, and even though it's growing, even though it's moving, even though there's harm and sin, it still says, and they were together. They remained of one mind. So some of you may know Tessica Brown. If not, you may know her story. So she went viral because she put Gorilla Glue in her hair. And she ran out of stuff to slick it down. And so she sprayed in some Gorilla Glue. And for those of you who don't know what Gorilla Glue, it's the type of stuff that if you leave the top off of it for maybe an hour, you got to throw the whole thing away. It is a chemical compound that is virtually impenetrable. And so she puts Gorilla Glue on her hair to slick it down. And I really don't think she was doing this to be famous. I think she did not know what she was messing with. It was so bad, she could not fix it. She could not restore her hair. A Ghanaian-born, Harvard-educated, celebrity plastic surgeon had to intervene and he flies her to California and he looks at the ingredients and he reverse engineers it. I know that the leading compound is this. And so I think if I do this and this and this and she goes under surgery and, and, and she 
finally got it out. Man, Gorilla Glue. It's a picture of the, the unity that we have. No more mistaking it for hair gel. You're right, man. Please don't do that. But the bond was so strong. You had to go to an expert to break it. Let me let you in on a little secret. Our bond in Jesus is what unites us. Through sin, through persecution, through growth, through diversity. And if Jesus tells us that no one can snatch you out of my hand, shouldn't that at least mean that we ought not give up on the body? That when we're offended or hurt, there's a stickiness to the body? But that's what, that's what Luke is saying happened, that there was a, a priority given to this body, both spatially and spiritually. And I'm not saying don't hoop with your non-believing friends. I'm not saying if you were in a fraternity or a sorority, renounce it. I'm not saying don't have non-Christian co-workers. I'm not saying build a fort and only be with none. You can't do that because you got to lead a world. What I am saying, though, there is a priority to the body. If we're going to be formed in the likeness of Christ, it will only happen in the family of Christ. You won't get it on the news. You won't find it in your politics. You won't find it in your nationalism. You won't find it in your ethnicity. You won't find it on Twitter. Or you'll find this capacity to be formed in the likeness of Jesus coming in the context of the family of Jesus. Now, the next thing is what are the practices of this believing community that aid in formation? In other words, I think they're saying they were together, they were together, they were unified, they were priority, but what did they do with their time? Now, I think a pattern is here. You see it in verse 46 where it says, and day by day, they attended the temple. You see it in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day. So that something of a pattern is, is here, that, 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 that what we see is, 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 is consistent, it's habitual, it's on and on, it's ongoing. But the most convincing thing to me is, is in the, the, the verbal tense of the words here. So in Greek, you can have something in the past tense, right? Something happened back here in 33 AD, right? It happened then and there. I'm just making a note of it. It happened then. All right, that's done. But there's another way to do something in past tense. When something happened in the past tense, but it was in the past tense, and it was a continual thing that they did. Here's what what Wallace says in his Greek grammar. He says, the key to translating imperfect verbs is by adding the words kept on, regularly, habitually, or continually. That's a Greek grammar guy who's saying when you see imperfect verbs, it, you, you, you can do this to them. You want to know what kind of verbs are being used in our passage? 
imperfect. Which means you could say they habitually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They constantly devoted themselves to the fellowship. They kept on breaking bread. They continually devoted themselves to the prayers. They consistently went to the temple. They were regularly in each other's homes. Now, I'm not saying that there is not other life to do outside the church. You got clothes to wash. You got children to feed. You got errands to run. You got diapers to change. You got homework to do. You got food to cook. You got spouses to date. You got loved ones to bury. You got homes to be clean, seasonal employment to be done, animals to care for, fishing nets to mend, horseshoes to repair, oil to get for your lamps, butchers to visit. But here's the thing. Those things did not crowd out these things. Somehow they were able to do life as individual Christians with their own other allegiances, but they did life in such a way that there was intersection. And what we start to see in this is that they are a learning community. That if we're going to be formed after the likeness of Jesus, we're embarking on a life of learning. You don't just get to a place and say, okay, download John 1 in my mind. I got it. I never need to look at John again. No. It's a lifelong pursuit of truth. Ever growing, ever learning. And that's what you see. It says they were constantly devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, why the apostles? Simply put, it's because the jokers who were their religious leaders were scribes, Pharisees, lawyers, and all those. And and if you go back and read the Gospels, they were the ones who put a plot together to kill Jesus. They They were the ones pulling the strings to crucify the Lord of glory. And the people were, in one sense, kind of trusting that they were right. And when Peter shows up, Peter says, no, you were really wrong. You kill the Lord of glory. Now, don't be overly guilt, overly guilty because this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But make no mistake about it. They deceived you. You killed the Messiah. And in God's wisdom, he used your evil actions to carry out his plan of redemption. But there is still guilt. You have been deceived. And so what you start to see is there's a break happening. They're breaking away from the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees, and the, I mean, just they're breaking away, and they are prioritizing what the apostles have to say. Why? Because they've been with Jesus. They're eyewitnesses to his miracles. He gave them clarity and insight. Where the religious leaders of this day wanted to focus on the externals of the law, you said that you, thou shalt not commit murder, I've not murdered anybody. I'm good. Jesus comes along. Do y'all really know what that meant? Who you curse out last week? Who did you call fool? You can murder someone with your words. The religious leaders weren't even on that plane of thought and thinking. And so when the apostles who had been with Jesus for three years, they're teaching not just law spirit. They have the best hermeneutic to look back at the Old Testament and see Christ there. 
And so these people are committed. Show me. Teach me. Show me Jesus. They're a learning community. They're a devoted community. And right there it says they devoted themselves continually to the fellowship. That word there is koinonia. It's this strong bond of mutuality. This sense of community where we give and we take and we bring our gifts to bear and we value the gifts in others. Our bond is in Christ. And here's what it says. They kept coming back to it. I think it's a lot like a marriage. You don't just check off your wedding day kind of as a thing you did. And, and now, but in marriage, you keep coming back to that covenant. You keep pursuing, you keep dating, you keep forgiving, you keep embracing, you keep loving. That that's, that's what's happening here. They are making the body of Christ a priority, spatially and spiritually. And what you see is they keep living in that same reality, coming back to it again and again and again. That they're breaking of bread together, and they're in the homes of God's people. These two things I'm, I'm putting together. Now, it says they were breaking bread in verse 42 and in 46, and some say that this could be the Lord's Supper. I don't think that's what this is, but I, I could be wrong, y'all. But I think when you read Acts in light of Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, that Jesus is always eating in people's houses, like all the time, like all the time, all the time. Let me show you Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus. Here's what he writes. Jesus spent his time eating and drinking, a lot of his time. That's why he's accused of a glutton and a drunkard. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching out into the evening He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. I love that picture for some reason, right? His gospel is full of stories of Jesus eating with people. Now think about this. I'm just going to go through some chapters because maybe you haven't seen it like this. And when I saw it like this, my eyes just kind of like, man. In Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners in the home of Levi. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, he feeds 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus is in the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, he condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, he's at a meal and he urges people, don't just invite people to your house who can pay you back. Invite people to your house and throw a party with people who can't repay you. In Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal sons, at the end of that, there's a feast and a fatted calf that's slayed because the son comes home. In Luke 16, there's a parable about a rich man who feasted sumptuously, and the poor man, Lazarus, who wanted the scraps from a table. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to the dinner of Zacchaeus. In Luke 22, we have the account of the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two disciples in Emmaus, and then he later cooks fish for his disciples who betrayed him. Here's what Chester says. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. 
Why? Jesus announced the kingdom had come. But what meals did was show proof. He announced that he's a God who delights to eat with sinners. And what Jesus' meals do, they prove that God wants tableship, table fellowship with the scandalous. They were a sign of friendship with tax collectors and sinners. His excess of food was a picture of his excess of grace. In the ministry of Jesus, meals were enacted grace, enacted community, and enacted mission. That one scholar says that, that, that when we eat with someone, it is likely that they are our friend, are on the way to becoming a friend. One scholar says that when persons were estranged, a meal is what opens up a way of reconciliation. And so when we see all of this breaking of bread, it was to enact a lavish table of God. It was to embody forgiveness, embody community, embody friendship, embody access, embody service. They regularly did this. It's kind of hard to hate somebody you got to sit across a table from, ain't it? It's kind of hard to invite an enemy to your house and to serve them and prepare and still hate them. They were devoted to prayer. I mean, to the, also to prayers. Now, it says the prayer. So what, is, what does that mean? I think a clue to this is in the next chapter. You can look at cha uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And so it says right here in our passage this morning that they continue to devote themselves to the prayers. And so what we think is happening is that they are so close to Judaism. The temple is still up and it will be up for another 30 years. That these converts are, they, they come to Jerusalem to, to practice Judaism and then they meet Jesus. And they didn't just chunk the deuces on everything Jewish. They continued for a season to go to the temple. And they probably continue for a season, a season to pray. The prayers that Jews would pray. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel got on his knees three times a day. In Jesus' ministry, Jesus is up at certain hours in the morning and during the afternoon and midday. He's praying. In other words, that what these new converts were doing together for one another and with one another they were talking to the Jesus that they could no longer see and abiding in the arms of the God who had rescued them. That as much as fellowship and talking to one another was important, what was equally important was communing with your God, making your request known, coming to him as a child who just wants to sit and their mother's or father's lap and just be there. They continued this. 
and they went to the house of God, not just the houses of each other. They were a worshiping community. We believe that the temple still existed for some 30 years after Jesus ascended. They were in each other's homes, but they also went to God's house. Think about our homes and what they convey to us about what we love. I can go to your closet and see your shoes. And I don't know if you're a sneakerhead, right? I could search your Netflix viewing history and see what type of shows you like. One might walk in your house and see photos on the wall. And they'll tell the world who you love. I go to your table, and if you're a, ta- a family of four and you have a, a, a place of eight, it will communicate that you love or long to practice hospitality. If I see pet hair on the floor, it tells me you love animals. Go to your medicine cabinet. It tells me what type of physical shape we're in that our homes reveal so much about us. Is this not true about going into the house of God, the earthly house of God, where you would see priests in their attire and you would hear animals? And you would see spotless animals and you would see atonement being made and you would see blood being thrown and you would see animals leaving and you would see priests and you would see lights and you would see smoke ascending. It was all communicating that a God who is holy wants to be near you. And they learned what God likes, the manna and the table of the law and the holy of holies. All of this was a picture of God's heart, his likeness, his character. And so they continued to go because they could continue to see, but only with new eyesight now. Now that they see that these are the, 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 the substances, but, but the, these are forms, but the substance has come in Jesus. So I imagine that it takes on new meaning. And so they continued to go. Because they were a worshiping people. They were caught up in something bigger than them. They wanted to give glory. They wanted to make much of mercy. They wanted to commune with the divine. Now, these six habits is what they ensured was on their planner week after week. I'm going to have meals with the body. I'm going to worship. I'm going to submit myself to the word. I'm going to have table fellowship. I'm going to be near. It looks like it's six different things, but I want to propose to you that I think it's two. Author Annie Dillard writes, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we're doing. Listen to this. Habits defend us from chaos and whim. Habits are the net given to you to catch your days. It is a scaffolding on which a worker can stand and labor with both hands in time. Habits are how we get our hands on time. And because time is the currency of our purpose, habits are how we get our hands on our purpose. Y'all hear that? 
if the currency to be who God has made you to be is time, then your habits allow us to get our hands on time and therefore hands on our purpose. And what you see the early church doing through their habits is getting their hands on their days, using a net to catch their time so that in catching their time, they could become who God wanted them to be and who did God want them to be? Love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All of these habits Help them love God. And they help them love neighbor. If you're curious on how to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, it starts with submitting to God's word. It starts with prioritizing corporate worship. It starts with communing with him in prayer And it don't have to be long, pharisaical, polished prayers. Just abide with your father. You want to love neighbor? Pray for your neighbor. You want to love neighbor? Prioritize the fellowship of the body. You want to love neighbor? Host your neighbor. You want to love neighbor? Go to lunch or a coffee shop with your neighbor. This is how the early church assisted early Christians to grow in love for God and love for neighbor. It wasn't aimless living. Doesn't this remind you of someone else? Isn't this a picture of Jesus? Did he not say that man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Your Messiah devoted himself to God's word. Did he not devote himself to the fellowship? When his earthly family tried to come get him and say, come home, he says, no, this is my family. When his family, his spiritual family, his disciples sinned against him, did he throw them out and ball them up and say, I'm starting over? No, he went and cooked them a meal. Did he not love his father's house? He says, zeal for the house of God consumes me. As a young boy, leave me at my father's temple to to see his goodness. As an older man, did he not drive money changers out? He loved to gather in the house of God. He regularly ate meals with people in the book of Luke. He communed with God in prayer. And at the end of his life, It should not surprise us that in loving God, he says, not my will, but your will. In loving neighbor, he gives up the thing that is most precious. That's his own life. That what you're starting to see is these young believers are being formed in the likeness of Jesus. Now, I'm going to finish quickly. I'm going to give you proof, proof that formation is happening. You see them love each other well, don't you? 
as they started to know one another and one another's stories, they realized that in their fellowship, everyone wasn't middle class or wealthy. They had poor people in this body. And I imagine that it probably went down like this. They feasted in a lavish feast in somebody's beautiful home. And it was someone else's turn to host. And as the body walked in and saw the hole in the floor and saw the sardines that they were eating and saw the two plates but ten people show up, the desire is there is to host. But as this body starts to see this contrast in economics, you want to know what the people who had two houses did and 10 extra lots of land while their sister or brother in Christ is over here starving? I'll sell it. I'll sell that piece of land if it means that my sister gets a field to grow her own. That's love. That's them loving neighbor, not neighbors 3,000 miles away that they will never meet, but loving neighbors right there in their fellowship. And isn't it Christ-like for the poor to depend on daily bread? Jesus never had a house. He says, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. But he prayed, Father, give me my daily bread. And his needs were met where? In the body. Both get to embody the likeness of Christ in helping and in receiving. This isn't a, hey, let's sell everything. The way we should translate this is as needs came up, as they were doing life together, then they begin to sell things off to help the other, their loving neighbor. Did you notice their hearts in this passage? Verse 46, that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And notice who they were praising in verse 47, God. Loving God, loving neighbor, embodied as they are being formed right here. And there are two supernatural proofs. In the book of Acts, whenever you see signs and wonders being done by the apostles, it's always to validate something important. So whether you have two people lying about what they sold and they keep back some proceeds and Holy Spirit strikes them dead, what God is emphasizing is I need you to be truth tellers in my midst. When Peter tells this man who couldn't walk to get up and walk, and then he preaches a sermon and more people are saved, what God is doing through the sign is validating the message of Peter's sermon. And what you see in this passage is that the signs and the wonders, what are they accompanying? What is God trying to validate and say, this is what I want you to see? It's their habits. Did you see that their number was added to daily by God? 
That's God telling them, didn't my son say that when you're unified and you love, the world will know you sent me with how you love one another. And what you have is these saints loving and serving and abiding and caring and growing. And as the watching world watches them, I want the God that's the glue to this. Tell me about him. This is my prayer for us, Redeemer. You'll notice in our confession of faith. Notice question 48. What's the church? A community that God chooses for himself, united by faith, who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. And God sends this community out to proclaim the gospel and prefigure his kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. We want Redeemer to be a place, an intentionally multi-ethnic, gospel-centered, covenant community where every member has an opportunity to worship, to learn, to give, to connect, and to serve. This is why we prioritize worship on Sundays, even in a pandemic. This is why your small group leaders and growth group leaders and women's leaders and men's studies, this is why they are doing everything they can to keep these things going. It's not just activity. This is how we're formed. Where's the room in your heart to maybe repent? Maybe if you've wanted formation without the means that God gives us to be formed. Where is there room for us to recommit as we think about where we are as a church? Man, how can I get to know someone? How can I deepen my love and connection here? I want you and us to grow into the image of Christ. And by God's grace and through his spirit, this is how he'll do it. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We love you. I pray, Lord, for our flock, that you will make us like those little cubs, that we would grow into maturity, and that you would use these means that you give us in your word to do so. May our lives look and feel and sound and be shaped as Jesus was. We love you. Amen. <laughs>